0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the AltMed podcast. Andrew Dowling here, my co-host with me, Mitch Kurtz. And remember, before we jump into today, if you like what we're doing, please hit like and subscribe to get our podcast wherever you get your feed. Rightio, so today we have a very special guest. We're going to be talking about ADHD and neurodiversity and how all of those things interact with medical cannabis. So it is my pleasure to introduce our GP for today, Dr. Bryce from EFCA, the Executive Function Consulting Agency. Welcome, Bryce.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for being
0: had. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm actually
2: really keen to get stuck into this one because um, we haven't talked a lot about ADHD, and and I think uh, it's generally... Quite misunderstood, just you know, throughout. Uh, I, don't, I think I've misunderstood it definitely. I, I still don't even know the difference between ADD and ADHD. Um, but we would love to get, before we get into that, a little bit of a history on yourself and how you found your way to, you know, writing medical cannabis scripts in the space.
1: Yeah. Um, so, a little bit about me. So, I live on the Gold Coast um, and I've been working as a GP for a number of years. And I sort of started my cannabis prescribing journey a couple of years ago, maybe two and a half, almost three years ago. And I was, you know, seeing patients come in on some cannabis therapies from some other uh, cannabis clinics. And I was like, oh, some of these people are getting some good results. And so I reached out to some of those early cannabis companies and I started off prescribing a little bit of CBD um, to my patients. And I noticed some really good results. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. Um, And then I started learning more about it and just getting fantastic results for patients um, and, you know, really weaning off, you know, a lot of medications that had nasty side effects. So that sort of got me interested in the cannabis space and that sort of progressed along. Um, And then towards the end of last year, I had uh, the opportunity to work alongside a psychiatrist in an ADHD specific clinic. Um, And so I was doing sort of the pre-assessment and management and assistant with diagnosis of people with ADHD, autism and learning disorders. And I just, it was that kind of that light bulb moment where I was like, hang on, everyone coming in here uses cannabis. And there was just this huge overlap between ADHD and cannabis And the more I looked into it, the more I just saw, you know, this overlap everywhere um, in my patients and with patients coming through the ADHD clinic, they're either on CBD, THC, they smoked cannabis. And I was like, okay, like there's something here. So I sort of just kept looking into it and um, yeah, I guess we'll talk about some of the stuff that I've found.
2: Absolutely. I, I think it might do some of the, li- I'm, I'm going to use the listeners as the scapegoat, but I really want it for myself just to yeah, kind of. I was about <laughs> to say, this is this is
0: for us, Mitch. Um, Can you uh, perhaps talk us through, I know what he's going to ask. Can you talk us through, Bryce, what is ADHD and perhaps also how does that differ from ADD?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So ADHD is the most common neurodevelopmental disorder uh, in children. And most people think of it as a childhood disorder, that hyperactive sort of child. It affects anywhere between five to 10% of the population. So, you know, up to one in 10 children, sometimes even reports are even higher than that, um, have ADHD. So Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Now, most people think that it's just a disorder of childhood, but it actually persists through to adulthood as well. Um, Approximately 10 to 15% of uh, people will outgrow their ADHD in a sense in that the symptoms subside as they get older, but in reality, most of it still persists into adulthood. So it's really hard to sort of describe what ADHD is because there's so many different types and symptoms. So I break it down really simply for my patients because... I need things to be simple for me to understand. And I think that our role as a doctor is to be a professional interpreter. So we need to make something that's really complicated, like complex neuropsychiatry, and translate it into something our patients can understand. So I go through a lot of the work of uh, Dr. Russell Barkley and Dr. Daniel Arman, and they like to talk about ADHD as an executive functioning disorder. And one of the hallmarks of ADHD is that the frontal cortex, so the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is the frontal lobe, just doesn't get enough blood flow. And that's a genetic uh, variance. So about 10% of the population on average, you know, some reports say 5, some say 10, no one really knows. About 5 to 10% have a genetic condition that means the frontal lobe of their brain just does not get enough blood flow. And so that frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, controls your executive functions. So if we talk about your executive functions, we'll go through them, and then we can talk about what they do. Um, The first one I'd like to talk about is something called emotion regulation. So if you don't have enough blood flow to the frontal lobe of the brain, That frontal lobe of the brain runs on two main neurotransmitters, which are dopamine, which is stuff you like doing, and adrenaline, which is things you're interested in. So if you don't have enough blood flow, dopamine, and adrenaline, you can't regulate emotions. So it means if you feel anxious, if you feel sad, depressed, angry, frustrated, you just can't regulate that emotion properly. The next executive function I talk about is impulse control. So people with ADHD are quite impulsive. And they're impulsive with their actions. They're impulsive with their emotions. And they're impulsive with their behaviours. So you'll see people, you know, impulsively move. So the ADHD child that can't sit still, they're impulsively moving. And one of the reasons they do that is to increase blood flow to the brain, increase heart rate, increase adrenaline, so get blood to the brain. Um, Other executive functions. So attention and focus, concentration, short-term working memory uh, is a big one. And there's other executive functions as well, such as time planning, procrastination, interest driven focus. So it's quite complicated. And you go, okay, we'll break it down, something nice and simple that everyone can understand. Basically, the ADHD brain doesn't get enough blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, which means that part of the brain doesn't get enough dopamine, adrenaline, and the ADHD brain does whatever it can to get that dopamine and adrenaline. That's in a nutshell sort of what adhd is and then we'll go through examples and we can talk about okay how does that actually look in in a person now that's
0: that's super helpful bryce and i think um you know as you were sort of talking through i was wondering you know is, is it nature or nurture you know does it is it a genetic disorder or is it caused by the environment one is you know exposed to um through you know cognitive development and yeah, it's it's quite interesting to hear that. Is it just because I've I do hear the term seemingly interwoven and interchanged with ADD? Is that similar in the sense that that also relates to a lack of blood in the free uh, prefrontal cortex that affects you know hyperactive behavior and and
1: attention and and these sorts of things as well? Yeah, so it's a misconception that patients with ADHD or ADD are actually hyperactive. And in the vast majority of cases, they're not. Mm. Um, So we like to talk about ADHD, or I like to talk about ADHD as an executive functioning disorder. So you talk about the executive functions. So you don't have to be hyperactive to have ADD or ADHD. Um, It's really a disorder of those executive functions. And the hallmark of that is that lack of blood flow to the prefrontal cortex causing those symptoms. Um, And there's actually seven sort of seven different types of ADHD, which all present different symptom sort of clusters, depending on where that reduction in blood flow is to the part of the brain. Why
2: why does it then get the hyperactivity kind of? Why is that in there, one, in the name, and two, the association that people tend to have?
1: Yeah. So, one of the reasons behind that is males are often diagnosed at much higher rates than females. So typically young male boys, you see the stereotype of, you know, the hyperactive kid that doesn't sit still. They're bouncing around the room. They're talkative all the time. Uh, Um, I
0: actually went to school with him and he's on this call.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So males often get picked up earlier because they display those external hyperactivity symptoms so they don't sit still they can't focus they get distracted they interrupt people all the time and it becomes a problem so they get picked up earlier and it's the rate in children is about eight males will get diagnosed for every one female we know it's 50 50 so you know there's you know, eight females being missed for every one male that's diagnosed early on. Um, And in adults, that sort of evens out a little bit, but still three males get diagnosed for every one female, typically because, you know, the females present a little bit less of that overt hyperactivity. So the symptoms that they have are often, you know, more picked up as anxiety or depression, and it's not thought that it's ADHD. Interesting. And so, interesting.
0: yeah, I, I was just curious about then. So, in in terms of, as you say, once you get to adulthood, there's a, a sort of consensus view largely that it does affect the population in equal measure across the sexes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in my practice, I, I see a 50 50 ratio of males to females. Um, they present very differently. So, okay males will present with, you know, certain symptom cluster and females might present a little bit differently. But the hallmark of those executive functioning challenges are there equally in males as females. Okay.
0: And it's kind of a, I think from, yeah, what you're describing, the it's that, yeah, the lack of blood that causes, um, yeah, the, the lack of emotional regulation. Um, and, and then in terms of, I, I suppose that, triggers mood and a whole lot of other symptoms i imagine is, is sleep might be affected
1: yeah, um, eating
0: habits does it just have this kind of domino effect on on quality of life for for people who who experience this
1: yeah absolutely and it's it's a really underrecognized and underdiagnosed condition so uh, studies and reports Go all the way up to about eighty-four percent of patients with ADHD will have at least one mental health comorbidity. So, mm-hmm. almost everyone. Um, and you know, about you know, of those eighty-four, you know, percent, you know, fifteen percent will have one mental health comorbidity. So, anxiety is the most common. So, anxiety or depression. It's actually more common to have more than one. So. Something I like to call complex ADHD, 60% of people with ADHD will have two or more mental health comorbid comorbid diagnoses. And, you know, the list goes on. So anxiety, depression, insomnia, um, they might have substance use disorder, bipolar, schizoaffective disorder. Uh, eating disorder so binge eating disorder anorexia so anytime i see patients with more than one mental health comorbidity i immediately think okay could there be adhd there as well which is underpinning this
0: interesting well what are the just i'm just curious we just talked before about the signs or the usual symptoms that you might see among you know um, childhood uh, across males what what would you see in you know young females who who might have adhd how do their symptoms express themselves
1: yeah so i sort of just go through the um executive functions so Mm -hmm. if we sort of use some examples in the executive functions you can see where the adhd sort of comes in so with regards to the emotion regulation you see you know people they have anxiety and they know they're not supposed to be anxious, but they are. Mm. And if you've ever told someone who's anxious, just not worry about that, they'll go, oh, yeah, you know what? I was just worrying. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for yeah. telling me that. Yeah, all I needed to hear
0: was how yeah. you
1: need to relax. <laughs> exactly. So most people, they know they're not supposed to be anxious, but they are. And there's nothing they can do about it. Um, so that typically is that anxiety hallmark, um, mm. depression, you know, frustration, anger, Um, So all of those emotions and just that inability to regulate those emotions properly. Um, And that often goes hand in hand with that lack of impulse control. So people to regulate their emotions, they need that dopamine and that adrenaline to regulate those emotions. So you'll see people impulsively doing things to regulate those emotions. So if you take eating, for example, Um, people will binge eat and they'll often binge eat on things they like eating like chocolate or fast food. Um, So you you see a lot of people, they binge eat and they don't know why they do it. They just can't stop themselves from eating. And part of that is they eat to, you know, emotionally regulate. The other thing that goes along with ADHD is that the ADHD brain requires 30% more energy to function. So it means 30% more sugar. So ADHD people are sugarholics. Mm. So they'll impulsively, you know, might binge eat on food or sugary things to get that sugar, that blood flow to the brain, something they like eating, that dopamine, that adrenaline. Um, So binge eating is a typical thing. Um, Short-term working memory is a big one. So if you've ever walked into a room and just forgot why you're there, um, if you've ever, um, you know, met someone and just instantly forgot their name, um, you know, it's things like following multi-step commands. Yeah. So think of you know, reading a recipe. So some people will have good short-term working memory. They can read a recipe, remember all the steps, and go and do it. Someone with ADHD will do step one, and they can't move on to step two because they can't remember it. So they have to do step one, chop the onions, go do that. Then they go, okay, what's well, step two? Mm-hmm. So it often gets them into trouble at school where the teacher will give a long list of instructions to They remember the first one. They can't remember anything else. They mm. get distracted and then they talk it, to their friends and get in trouble.
2: Is it fair to say though, like, I just want to figure out where the line is. But like sometimes you, some of the stuff you're saying, I, I would want to apply to myself. Um, I I don't think I have ADHD. I don't know. I can't qualify that, but you're, you're probably able to tell me off the, the, by the end of this uh, video huh. call, but um, I, I've done a, I've done a couple of tests out of curiosity, and I, I came up negative. I don't know if that counts for anything, um, but I feel like some of the stuff you're saying applies to me. You know, check, checking the recipe <laughs> one light at a time, kind of thing. Um, where where is the line for something that might be you know kind of normal? I don't know, forgetfulness, let's say, versus actual, you know, uh, quality. Uh, validated adhd if, if you will
1: absolutely yeah so to qualify for a diagnosis of adhd you actually have to have the disorder so the disorder means that it's affecting your functioning in a negative way mm-hmm. so if you're a little bit forgetful and you forget people's names but ah whatever everyone forgets people's names that's not a big deal mm-hmm. but if you are late To school every day because Mm. you leave your bag at home you leave Mm. your phone you can't find your keys because you put them down somewhere Mm. you put them in the fridge because you're doing something else um you know that becomes it impacts your life in a negative way and so that then becomes a disorder so the key hallmark of the add or adhd is it has to be impacting your life in a negative way and often it needs to be impacting your life across at least two settings. So if everything's okay at home and you're just stressed at work and so you can't focus and concentrate and work, it's only affecting one setting. Um, so it needs to be across all of the different domains of your life and impacting you in a negative way.
0: And I suppose, you know, even hearing these types of symptoms, I, I suppose that there's a, usually for the patients that you would see, I'm guessing... It, you know, unequivocally is a disorder because if you are impulsive with respect to, say, emotional outbursts or you're forgetful because you can't do multi-step commands, then that will frustrate the people around you. And so you have this kind of circle of, you know, relationships that are constantly being tested by your disposition, which you have no necessary control over in the sense that it's a genetic Um, predisposition um so i i want to actually just kind of (laughs) just jump to one thing that i I hear raised about adhd and please consider mitch and i if it's not already apparent to be complete rookies on the topic Mm. Uh, but (laughs) you hear people saying oh you know it just seems to be getting diagnosed more and more these days and you know when i was insert whatever how old the person is you know years ago i I don't remember a single kid in my classroom having now everyone's got it. Everyone's on dexamphetamines and you hear these kinds of prevailing views in the community. What, what do you say to that? I mean, I kind of heard you say before that you feel that it's been underdiagnosed over time. Is, is that kind of where you stand on that, that type of view?
1: Yeah. So there, there's a number of factors that contribute to ADHD um, and I think it goes along with the dopamine um, hypothesis, uh, and also people believe it's an issue with um, you know the Western world as well, which we do see much higher rates. And I think we have one of the highest rates of ADHD in the world in Australia, and there's different theories behind that. Um, but you know, if we look at Australia and we we look at you know how we're doing as a country in terms of our mental health. Now, we have the second highest rate of antidepressant prescriptions in the world, so per capita. We're one of the most overweight and obese, you know, nations in the entire world. We have one of the top 10 suicide rates in the entire world. We are the highest, uh, we have the most gambling, uh, highest rates of gambling in the entire world. We have one of the most uh, alcoholic, um, you know, alcohol addicted, smoking addicted, drug addicted, you know, populations. Um, So we go, okay, well, how does that all play into ADHD? And we look at, you know, the blood flow to the brain um, and all of those things affect blood flow. So, you know, anything that impacts on blood flow to the brain can cause these symptoms. Um, So, you know, that's one of the hypotheses behind you know the development of ADHD is that you know there's the genetic component um, but also there's that you know blood flow and anything that can impact the blood flow in the brain can do that the other thing is that dopamine hypothesis and we are so addicted to dopamine now you know Mm. you cannot go into a school and see a kid that's not glued to their phone Mm. and so we get dopamine 24 7 from everything that we do Um, and there's some great podcasts on that there's Uh, some great books called Dopamine Nation which is all about how we're so wired for dopamine that we're so addicted to it that our brains actually crave it all the time Um, and you know that's a phenomenon that we've never ever had in the world we've never had smartphones that can give us that dopamine 24 7 whenever we want it and Mm -hmm our brains are so addicted to dopamine it's really hard to switch off so our kids that are growing up they're growing up addicted to dopamine and yeah and
0: all those things so you get dopamine from eating a food that you like you get dopamine from the reward centers when you're gambling um, and you know from alcohol or drug consumption it's um i actually did hear an interesting podcast on on dopamine and and some other things other neurochemicals by the Huberman lab I don't know if you're familiar but yeah absolutely
1: yeah yeah, um, yeah.
0: really really interesting for anyone who wants to do a deep dive on that topic but what's what about um just the role of I know we're going to jump into the um the role that that medical cannabis can can play in in hopefully helping people with with ADHD and, and maybe touch also on neurodivergence but before we do that what 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 well, can we as a starting point um, just to give context to medical cannabis being i guess a recent treatment um, dexamphetamines other drugs that were that have been typically and continue to be prescribed to treat adhd what are those drugs trying to do and what are some of the side effects that that can be caused by those drugs
1: yeah Sorry, i know
0: that's a hugely ambiguous mm yeah i <laughs> time. Uh, sorry to throw that one at you
1: yeah no it's, it's a whole topic in itself um yeah. the treatment of adhd so treatment of adhd you know the first thing to do is get blood to the brain so the number one treatment of adhd is exercise mm-hmm. and you need to get enough sugar to the brain enough nutrients to the brain um so diet and dietary modification is the number one treatment alongside with exercise so if you are not exercising and not eating the right diet um, you're not getting enough nutrients to the brain and so you know you're not treating the brain properly which is really hard especially if you've got some a child who's neurodivergent um, who you struggle with you know dietary um, issues and challenges that can be really difficult so medications are a fantastic adjunct And Dr. Russell Barkley, who's one of the world leaders in ADHD, he describes ADHD medication, so dexamphetamines and, and, um, you know, your methylphenidate, so Ritalin, as like putting glasses on a child. So Mm. if you cannot focus, if your brain cannot focus, when you get given a medication that treats the ADHD, it's like giving someone glasses for the first time. And we wouldn't deny someone who can't see properly, you know, we wouldn't go, oh, no, just focus your eyes, don't have these glasses. It's like doing that for a child with medications. So the medications increase that dopamine and that adrenaline and increase that heart rate to get that blood flow to the brain. And they fill that deficiency in that frontal cortex, and they treat those symptoms of ADHD. So it can be an absolute life-changing medication for a lot of patients and a lot of families.
0: But in terms of side effects, do we what what do we see from the use of those? And I, I'm guessing they don't work for everyone.
1: Yeah. So um, about seventy percent. Of people will respond quite well to dexamphetamine, 30% of people won't. Mm. Uh, again, 70% of people will respond quite well to the methylphenidate, which is Ritalin, uh, 30% of people won't. So, when you combine those two medications together and people try one or the other, about 88% of people will respond quite well with minimal side effects. Um, mm-hmm. At least uh, 12% of people with ADHD that a stimulant medication won't work well for them. Um, and then we have other options. So there are non stimulant options. Um, there are some blood pressure um, medications that we like to use as well. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people, which is why they turn to medicinal cannabis, is that they have significant side effects from those medications, either because they've been prescribed them inappropriately at the wrong doses or they've had you know, those typical side effects, which can be, you know, increased heart rate, palpitations, um, appetite suppression is a really uh, big one. Uh, increase in anxiety can be another uh, common side effect of those medications.
2: I'm actually um, really keen to explore this because there's somebody uh, close to me in my life who um, who takes some of these medications, and I've raised the point of trialling, you know, CBD oil or you know, THC as an option. Um, and they've said, no, nah, no, thanks. Don't want any of that snake oil. I'll stay with the real stuff and go to a real doctor. Basically was the <laughs> the feedback I got. Um, and I just want to, you know, not only address that kind of stigma, but, but, uh, I would love to understand from your perspective, why, why medical cannabis could be an effective treatment.
1: Yeah. Um, I probably should mention about ADHD and that, um, it's, uh, we talked about it being a genetic condition um, and probably didn't emphasize how important that genetics was um, so about you know 80 percent of time to- of the time it's genetic um, and it's as inheritable as height so people don't realize that and they go oh my son's got ADhD and I Talk to them about those symptoms and I go, okay, who's got it, mum or dad? And every single time they go, oh, yeah, it's dad because, you know, you know, dad has all those hallmarks or it's mum. So when people are looking at ADHD and they're getting their children assessed or, you know, their parents assessed or if they're using cannabis to treat their own ADHD, um, they often then will look at the other family members, their siblings or their parents and go, ah, okay, yeah, um, let's get them treated or assessed for their ADHD as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we'll talk about the cannabis side of things. So cannabis and ADHD, about 50% of people with ADHD use cannabis on a regular or a daily basis, mm-hmm. which is quite a Pretty lot, High, like one in two, right? Um You know, studies of people presenting to facilities for cannabis use disorder, 46% of them had ADHD. So it's almost one in two, right? If we look at, you know, the cannabis statistics uh, around the world, and a lot of the data comes from America, um, you know, 18% of adolescents had a cannabis use disorder. So, you know, almost one in five, you know, teenagers had a cannabis use disorder. Um, In adults, that's about 9% of the population has a cannabis use disorder. And so if we look at the statistics of ADHD and the overlap, we go, oh, okay, those those percentages are are fairly similar. Um, Of people that have ADHD, about 25% of them think that cannabis is helpful for treating the symptoms of ADHD. You go, okay, so, you know, people with ADHD are using cannabis. Why? So we have to talk about, okay, what does cannabis do to the brain? So CBD is one section. So CBD, we know activates, you know, the endocannabinoid system and the CB1 and CB2 receptors in the brain and the body. And there's not really any studies out there to show that CBD is particularly harmful for ADHD. And, a lot of you know the patients I've treated. We use CBD alongside their um, stimulant medications without any real side effects. It's mainly the THC that we talk about that people use to treat symptoms of their ADHD. And seventy percent of people using you know cannabis or using drugs or medications to treat their ADHD say that you know they're using it to treat the symptoms the side effects the anxiety the depression they're not using it to get high or anything like that they're using it to treat those symptoms of sleep anxiety insomnia so thc interestingly on you know brain scans that we do on people it increases levels of dopamine and adrenaline in the prefrontal cortex So if you think, okay, so ADHD is a lack of blood flow dopamine and adrenaline and THC increases dopamine and adrenaline in the prefrontal cortex, it's the perfect drug to treat ADHD, right? (laughs) Because it gives exactly what we need. The only problem is it does it too well. (laughs) It actually turns off the brain's ability, so that homeostasis, it turns off the brain's ability to make its own dopamine and adrenaline. So CBD actually helps. It's that regulatory system. It helps regulate those neurotransmitters. We make serotonin, we make dopamine, we make adrenaline. The CBD can help regulate that process. The THC actually gives us dopamine. It gives us adrenaline and it does it too well. So if you start using too much of it, your brain stops making its own and you actually become more adhd the symptoms of adhd actually get worse Interesting. So it's, it's really tricky because patients use it to treat the, the symptoms of adhd but it actually makes their adhd worse in the process
0: you're effectively involved in this kind of elaborate balancing act you talk, yeah homeostasis and just trying then i mean it, it's speaks to the importance of getting dosing right. And the, the, you know, the art of titration, um, just something that popped into my head, which is strangely a way of putting it as it relates to my question is, can you map blood flow? Like if, if you were on the fence about a diagnosis for a given patient, can you actually, you know, do that? I don't know, is it called neuro mapping um, to yeah.
1: so what- um I did this for a patient the other day, actually. So, um, you know, with look at the comorbidities of ADHD, and you know, the link between the substance use disorder, you know, alcohol, gambling addiction, cannabis use, porn addiction, gaming addiction. Think of anything that gives you dopamine; in the ADHD brain can get addicted to it. So, I had a patient the other day, and uh, he'd been to rehab about three or four times for alcohol addiction, um, and you know, I was convinced that this was ADHD, had all the hallmark executive functioning challenges, rehab. The second he came out of rehab, relapsed straight back to the, you know, alcohol. And I did a, what's called a SPECT CT scan. So a CT SPECT scan. So it's a brain scan, which we inject a little uh, radio tracer and it actually maps the blood flow of the brain. So Mm. if you think of, uh, a CT scan or an MRI, like opening the hood of a car and looking in and looking at the engine, a CT spec scan actually looks at what the engine does when it's turned on. So it actually looks at how the blood flow to your brain works when it's turned on and when, when it's running. So I did that scan for him and it just showed a very clear hyperperfusion in that prefrontal cortex so, you know, referred him back to his psychiatrist and said, hey, look, we've got to treat this guy's ADHD. And, you know, we got him a stimulant medication and significant improvement instantly. So when people start a medication for ADHD, like a stimulant, it works within 15 minutes. So wow. within, within 15 minutes, his life had changed.
2: Yeah, wow. But when you're saying that a lot of people that are presenting, you know, and specifically in the US for... Um, you know, ADHD with usage of, of cannabis, my assumption would have been in those cases, there would be more on the THC side is. Uh,
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah. So it's the THC. That's the issue. Um, And there was a study done in New Zealand um, that showed that daily use of THC in the developing brain and, you know, the ADHD brain actually develops at a rate of 30% slower than a non-ADHD brain. Um, so, you know, under THC use under the age of 25 was actually linked to an average IQ reduction in up to eight points for people who are daily THC users and interestingly uh, that once they stopped using cannabis they never got that IQ back so as cannabis doctors we need to be very careful in people under the age of 25 if we're using high doses of THC uh, we can actually permanently affect people's IQ um, for the rest of their life. Mm, Interesting is it the um, I mean one of the things
0: though that really strikes me about that case study you just mentioning is you know the extent and it's it's the known unknown the extent of um people who are undiagnosed or possibly misdiagnosed at this point in time I, i mean one of my good friends was recently diagnosed with adhd in his early 30s and you just think had that intervention come earlier in his life you know it could have improved his quality of life so do you th- know if there's anything really that yeah that that can be done to make people more aware and to even i guess there's there's no harm in asking the question or submitting yourself to testing like that that ct spec to to actually determine whether or not you know you might actually have this diagnosis
1: yeah so one of the things Uh, that I like to sort of promote is, you know, education and training for doctors. So one of the things that hopefully people take away from, if they're listening to this podcast, especially medicinal cannabis prescribers, is that the vast majority of patients that you will see could potentially have ADHD. Because this is what I see in my clinical practice. So if we look at the prescribing, well, prescribing statistics for for cannabis in Australia, So 61% of prescriptions are for chronic pain, 16% were for anxiety, 5.7% were for sleep disorders. So 82.7% of all the prescriptions for medicinal cannabis in Australia were for common comorbidities of ADHD. Mm. And when you think of, okay, what is a cannabis doctor? So people go and see a cannabis doctor in Australia to get prescribed a medication. A cannabis medication when they've tried a first-line therapy and it hasn't worked or they've had side effects to medication and it's a chronic condition that's persisted for more than three months. And we go, oh, okay, well, ADHD very commonly is misdiagnosed. They've tried a medication that hasn't worked because it's not been a medication to treat ADHD um, and it's persisted for more than three months and ADHD is a lifelong condition. So, eighty-two point seven percent of the prescriptions in Australia for medicinal cannabis—you've got to think, okay, well, maybe there is some ADHD, and if they're prescribed a THC product and the symptoms get better, well, it's increasing dopamine, it's increasing adrenaline, it's increasing, you know, that in the executive functions in the prefrontal cortex. Well, maybe they did have ADHD, and that's why the cannabis treatment is working. Yeah, is, is
0: it? Can we jump? because I, I do want to maybe touch on medical cannabis just a little bit more. So do you ever have a situation where because of those side effects that someone might have with with a stimulant that you know as a as a treating doctor, you have to essentially wean them off the stimulant onto medical cannabis. Is that some a, a practice that you know some doctors who have the the requisite expertise, will do, or is that a, a bit of a no-go?
1: Um, so that, that's, yeah, it's, that's a really tricky one. Um, so anytime I do anything with cannabis, it's it's overlapping with ADHD is, is really in conjunction with the patient's treating team. So mm. it's a really individualized approach. So I always tell my patients that I'm treating the patient, I'm not treating the condition. So yeah. you have to listen to your patient and all the comorbidities that go along with it. So they might have chronic pain, they might have ADHD, anxiety, depression, and they might be on a multitude of different medications or different treatment modalities. And you actually have to work very closely with the treating team. So the, one of the problems with the, some of the cannabis access clinics is that it allows the patient to choose their therapy and there's not that correlation with that treating team. So, you know, it's not uncommon that I see patients that are taking, you know, smoking four grams of cannabis per day and they've got ADHD and it's just making their ADHD significantly worse. Mm. Or patients with chronic pain who are prescribed high doses of THC oil or THC flour when the chronic pain is driven by their ADHD. And their hyper focus on their chronic pain, um, and it's actually making their ADHD symptoms worse when they think that it's actually it's helping. And so-
0: CBD in that instance would be far more helpful because it wouldn't exacerbate the symptoms quite so much. Potentially, is that?
1: Yeah. So the so there was a uh, study that just came out um, in May of this year. Which showed that concurrent use of CBD with THC actually spared parts of the limbic system, um, which is the system in the prefrontal cortex, which controls that emotion regulation and that impulsivity. So the CBD actually helped to neurocognitively protect the brain against the harmful effects of THC.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: which is interesting in the work, um, so there's a lot of work and research at the moment going into CBD and traumatic brain injury, um, which a lot of people are talking about. And you think of, okay, traumatic brain injury, chronic repetitive concussions causes you know damage to the brain, that leads to damage to blood flow and it leads to ADHD type symptoms. So they can't focus, they can't concentrate, they can't regulate emotions. So I see this in a lot of my professional athletes um, who either have ADHD as a baseline and about 20% of professional athletes have ADHD. um, So almost one in five. Um, And, you know, or they've then had a career of concussions, head injuries, you know, repetitive, you know, blows to the head like boxers or you know, football players, and now they have ADHD-like symptoms because of those repetitive, um, you know.
0: That that is things. going to be mind-blowing, I think, for some listeners. So essentially compared to the general population, professional athletes are more likely statistically to have ADHD symptoms.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, if you think of uh, what is a professional athlete, so it's routine structure, it's diet and lifestyle modification, it's regular high intensity exercise. So it treats the symptoms of ADHD. Mm. And we look at our professional athletes, and what happens when they get injured? They stop playing uh, sport. They, you know, they fall apart. They're anxious. They're depressed. Um, you know, they go out on the weekend. They drink alcohol. And, you know, get into all kinds of trouble or they abuse drugs and substances, um, yeah. so, you know, all, you know, you know, executive functioning challenges of ADHD, which they didn't have when they were playing, but when they're not playing and they're not having that diet and that exercise as much, then they display symptoms of ADHD. And that's, that
0: sort of ties it as well to, you know, you often hear about the difficulty in that transition once you know the the career of a professional athlete is statistically usually quite short and you know stepping back from that into you know a more ordinary day-to-day life is um is often you know quite a challenge when you, when you hear from from athletes
1: absolutely and this is something we see in our military veterans all the time so yeah. we talk about suicide rates in military veterans which are very very high and suicide rates in patients with ADHD are five times higher than the general population. And a statistic which is pretty damning is that ADHD untreated can reduce life expectancy by up to 25 years, which is pretty high. Yeah,
0: that's, that's crazy.
1: I, I don't know any other condition in medicine that reduces your life expectancy that significantly that affects up to 10% of the population.
0: Goodness. What about, um, if I can just take take us to the more broader terminology around neurodivergence, this is actually a term that I, I only heard for the first time this year, the, the term neurodiversity, um, the, pardon my ignorance, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I wasn't familiar with the term and someone sort of haphazardly explained it to me, but I would be grateful to hear from a, from a doctor. What, what, what do, what is neurodivergence?
1: So neurodivergence refers to uh, people who are not neurotypical in, in the sense. So people who have ADHD or are on the autistic spectrum disorder are class uh, sort of referred to as that neurodiverse population. So it's, Basically, basically means that you have ADHD or autistic spectrum disorder or a combination of the two.
0: Okay, um, and, and so it's not like there's kind of broad umbrella within which ADHD sits. It's sort of a, a separate thing, or
1: um, so ADHD and autistic spectrum sort of fit under the neurodiversity umbrella.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah got
1: it. Okay, so.
0: Yeah in terms then of uh, and I I conscious we don't want to steal so much of your time but um no, can I just maybe take you to if you could I, I'd love to just hear from your clinical practice some case studies I, I know you you talked about that you know guy who had alcohol um issues that was recently diagnosed at a, at a late stage of his life with with ADHD but can you just maybe take us through a couple of examples of um, you know, what you see at the coalface, um, how it was treated, what works, what you found might not work. Yep. Grateful to hear that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, so uh, one thing that I see in a lot of my patients is something I refer to as RSD or rejection sensitive dysphoria, which we haven't really talked about. And it's a key hallmark of ADHD. So it's actually the perception that you've disappointed others in your life And because of that disappointment, they've withdrawn their love, approval or respect for you. So Mm -hmm. that turns internal in a lot of people and it turns into people pleasing and not wanting to let people down, high expectations for yourself. And this can be a really, really, you know, difficult symptom, you know, which is that emotion regulation for patients. So a really great example. um, So this is an example for a patient I treated who had, a diagnosis of autistic spectrum disorder and ADHD. And it's very common for those two diagnoses to overlap that people often think they're the same thing. So autistic spectrum disorder is, you know, a neurodevelopmental condition, which you know, people find it difficult to understand social cues to read between the lines, those nonverbal cues. So I had a beautiful 15 uh, year old girl who presented with her family And um, she was struggling with the autistic um, side of things, understanding, um, was struggling at school. And then the ADHD side of things, she was really struggling with regulating her emotions, having big emotional meltdowns, um, you know, had a lot of hypersensitivity symptoms. So, you know, could only wear certain clothing, was irritated by tags and things on her clothes. So... We treated her with some CBD because she didn't respond very well to typical medication. That's why they came to see me. Um, and after two weeks, she came back and she said, "I don't like it." I'm like, what do you what do you mean? She's like, "I don't like it. It makes me sad." So, well, what do you mean it makes you sad? And so, my patients, when they tell me something, I go, okay, cool. If it works great, if it doesn't work even better, because it helps me learn more about you because I'm treating you. And she said, the CBD makes me sad. And I was like, well, that's a really interesting response. I've never heard anyone say that before. And what was happening is that she was sad that her parents were going to die. Now, one of the, you know, things about autism is it's they don't some people don't understand, you know, time perception. They don't understand you know, that, um, you you know, the social structure. So before the CBD, she never realised that her parents were going to die one day. Mm. When she started that, she started to interpret things in a different way. And she was watching movies and she used to like romantic comedies. She started crying when she was watching these romantic comedy movies. And she turned to me and she said, Is this how neurotypical people feel? It must be horrible for them.
0: Uh, So that sort of opening up of the depth of her connection and ability to read social situations aided by CBD yeah, actually exposed her to the full array of, you know, how we can interpret both the good and bad in life. That that, that is fascinating. I must admit I have never heard anyone, I've heard people say, I don't like the taste of it or (laughs) I've never heard anyone say it makes me sad.
1: Yeah. That's
0: really interesting.
1: So she started understanding emotions, which Mm. she'd never had before. Now, she still had untreated ADHD. So she wasn't able to regulate those emotions and then was having that impulsive response to those emotions. So then we used a medication alongside the CBD to treat the ADHD and now she could understand emotions and she could regulate those emotional responses. Um, yeah. And absolutely fantastic. So that's sort of a key of you know, you treat the ADHD, but you also have to treat, you know, if you treat the autism, you have to treat the ADHD at the same time. Um, yeah. So yeah, if we first... <laughs> otherwise she would come back and just say, nah, cannabis doesn't work. It makes me sad. And, <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, Have Uh, you ever
0: watched a a rom-com under the influence of CBD oil?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't actually. (laughs) I
0: think I want to try it now. I might actually tear up a little bit. Your life's sad enough,
2: Andrew. (laughs) Um,
1: Another example I wanted to give was, um, so when I was working in the ADHD clinic, I had a um, 19-year-old come and see me who was really struggling with his ADHD. And he'd been prescribed a sativa dominant THC flower um, from a cannabis prescriber. And when I asked about what was going on, he'd actually developed symptoms of almost schizoaffective disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. And when we looked back, it all correlated with the starting of the prescribing of the THC. So... Sativa dominant THC products actually increase that dopamine and adrenaline more. Um, Indica based actually increase a little bit of GABA, which is the inhibitory hormone in that prefrontal cortex. And so GABA ones are better for sleep because they calm and relax a bit more. Whereas, you know, the sativas are more stimulating, as we kind of know, and you can get into the terpene profiles. But what was happening is that. He was being prescribed a THC flower, which was interacting with his Ritalin and increasing his heart rate and increasing anxiety, and it was actually giving him too much dopamine, and the excess amount of dopamine was causing a schizoaffective-like disorder. It was increasing anxiety, and it was causing obsessive-compulsive traits. So when you look at that in the ADHD framework, he was having an emotion... He couldn't regulate that emotion and he was impulsively, you know, cleaning and doing impulsive actions, repetitive behaviors to try and rectify that emotion, Mm. but he couldn't do it. So then he would go and smoke more cannabis. (laughs) Uh, Well, that'll help. (laughs) But he thought it helped. And when he went back to his cannabis prescriber, he said, look, when I smoke weed, it helps. So they said, okay, we'll smoke more weed, which (laughs) then. made his ADHD worse. So this is the tricky thing with uh, prescribers who don't understand ADHD is that your ADHD patients will tell you that the cannabis helps and treats the symptoms, but it actually makes the ADHD worse at the same time. Mm. So that's how you get into this cycle of people using more and more and more, and they develop this, you know, a cannabis use disorder. And unfortunately, a lot of patients who you know are prescribed cannabis um to develop these cannabis use disorders and it's tricky because they're telling the doctors that it's helping and it is but it's actually making things worse at the same time yeah uh, is, is it always making
2: things worse or is there a level at which it's actually doing some I'm I'm trying to actually get the position on whether yeah it's, isn't it
0: isn't a... from what i understood it was a, it's a dosing thing to achieve homeostasis is that
1: well, yeah, it's it's really difficult. So it, it depends on which uh, researcher you listen to. So <laughs> there's there's studies out there that show that THD is bad, it um, damages the dendrites and it reduces the connectivity. Then there's people out there saying, well, the connectivity is reduced in people with ADHD. And so they need that extra dopamine and adrenaline to function normally. And that's why you need to treat the person in front of you, you know, not the condition. Yeah. So, If, you know, if you've got someone that can't focus, can't concentrate, you know, they're, you know, 62% more likely to have a car accident because of their untreated ADHD. Yeah. They're Mm. five times more likely to commit suicide. Right. They've got a 25 year reduction in life expectancy. Yeah. They're, you know, 50% more likely to have a BMI over 40 because of their binge eating disorder. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
2: it's just it's interesting for me because when I listen to some of what you're saying I get the impression that you're almost it's saying that cannabis is is not a good treatment for people with ADHD but then wondering you prescribe cannabis for ADHD. <laughs> so I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of figure out where the position is at at what point is it good at what point is it kind of bad or in your opinion um, Yeah
1: yeah so again, you need to treat the person in front of you and the individual situation. So if you've got someone who's got chronic pain, who's got insomnia, who's got anxiety, depression, who's had substance use disorder, all of these kind of comorbidities, cannabis can be a really good treatment because it can help treat a number of different conditions at the same time. It can help improve their sleep. It can... know, help improve their appetite it can help reduce their chronic pain and work on their anxiety so you need to treat the person in front of you and if cannabis is an appropriate treatment modality for them then you work out a dosing and a treatment plan that's right for that patient Um, you know a lot of the time patients come and see me for a cannabis appointment i turn around and go Oh, well, you know, actually, <laughs> we just, you've got ADHD. We need to go and treat your ADHD. And they go, oh, well, that makes sense. And yeah. they don't actually need to use a cannabis product, or we just use a CBD to help all that neuroregulation, um, as opposed yeah. to moving to a THC product. So I prescribe a lot more CBD than I do THC. Yeah, understand. Do-
2: but do you prescribe, when you're prescribing CBD, do you prescribe it as like a, an isolated form or would you go for something that maybe does contain small amounts of THC, for example, to, uh, in a more full-spectrum approach?
1: I, my approach is always to go for a full-spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. I find they are much, much more effective than mm-hmm. isolates. Um, you know, and when we talk about you know what you know, the, the plant does... Um, you know, little bits of THC in there to get that entourage effect to work on all those neural synapses is I find much, much more effective than than an isolate. Mm -hmm. Mm.
2: Interesting. So really it's for you in your prescribing patterns, it's, it's, it's about the the, the volume of let's say CBD or THC. So maybe a, a smaller, very small amount is, is actually beneficial, but potentially, you know, big doses, people smoking 10 joints a night kind of thing is, is going to be obviously not ideal. <laughs> I don't think there's many people that that would be ideal for, but potentially, um, you know, even worse in this situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, everything in moderation, mm. um, so an ADHD person who, you know, has a bit of cannabis here and there is not going to cause any, any major dramas. But if you're being prescribed, you know, three, four grams of THC per day, um, that's going to cause significant worsening of your ADHD, um, and yeah. it's definitely going to interact with any other medication that you're trying to, trying to use.
0: Probably likely to induce munchies as well, which then leads to, you know, poor diet, the obesity, the, the sugar, the sugar like hit. Sugar hit, all that sort of stuff. It's all all tied in. Um yeah. but yeah, no. Um you've got I, to you've got to have a bong whilst you're running. That's the combination, <laughs> I think. Is, Look, I've 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 not <laughs> done that much, and I don't intend to start, but uh um, there's not a honest. not not medical advice. <laughs> it's um it's been an <laughs> no. absolute pleasure picking your brain, so to speak. I I must admit, like your wisdom in just understanding where human behavior comes from, you know, the genetic source of, you know, what what happens upstream in the, the prefrontal cortex and how that, you know, leads to behaviors downstream is just so fascinating. And yeah, you really are a, a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And yeah, we've, we're very, very um, grateful to, to have you jump on and, and talk to us about it. I, I'm aware that a lot of the questions that we asked I think we touched on it at one point probably could have been an episode in themselves. So you know, kudos to you for um for being able to give us the uh, the very high level overview on on all of all of the um the topics connected to ADHD.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, it's it's such a big field and it's mm. such a new field of research. Um, and it's a field of medicine that isn't really taught in medical schools. It's not taught in you know, pediatrician or psychiatry training to sort of this extent. So it's really a new field and, you know, we're at the forefront of unlocking, okay, is cannabis, uh, you know, a treatment for ADHD? Um, Well, you know, 50% of people with ADHD use cannabis. So, you know, if we're listening to our patients, we go, okay, well, it's helping 50% of our patients or so they say. So, you know, it's definitely an area we really need to explore and put some research into.
0: Yeah, and I'm. We need to encourage people who have had a, an ADHD diagnosis to consider being an elite athlete as well, because clearly they're. By... <laughs> no, 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 just fifty
2: well, percent of usage. It's that's a pretty good case for an AB test. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: uh, yeah, the the other thing is, you know, cannabis doctors or people that are using medicinal cannabis. You know, if you're finding cannabis beneficial, ask yourself or ask your patients. Well why is the treatment I'm doing working when nothing else has? Yeah. So if, you know, you use a cannabis product and it works, you go, well, okay, why is it working?
0: Mm. And,
1: you know, actually stop and work backwards and go, okay, well, this is working, but why is this working when nothing else was? There's mm. got to be a reason for it. So rather than just going, oh, cannabis works, that's great. Stop and think and go, well, why is it working?
0: Yeah,
2: well, that's your um, job. Don't give that to us. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, this is, and we're so glad
0: you're, you know, kind of plugged in and connected to taking the field forward, Bryce. Because uh, you know the passion is is obvious, and you know I'm sure. And if we uh, pick pick up an episode um, and do this again five, ten years from now, I'm sure you'll uh, <laughs> have even more nuggets of gold to to share from from your own experience.
1: Yeah, I think even if we did this, you know. Two months from now, there'll be <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. That's, that's come <laughs> out every every week. There's there's new research. It's it's so hard to keep up with, which is uh, which is great for the industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it has been yeah our pleasure chatting with you today, and yeah, just thanks so much for your time.
1: Hey, okay, not a problem at all. Anytime.
0: Thanks, Thank Bryce. You. It's been fantastic. And- And I'll just give one last shameless plug. If you did like this conversation and you like the Altmed podcasts, please hit like and subscribe. Until next time, take care.